scary. Scary stuff, isn't it? Well, don't worry. Boyd Kaler made this bunker. We're safe. We've got MREs. We've got everything. We have a cot. I can even hide from you guys over there. I got a blanket. We're safe in here. Actually, I think, I think he's right. I was reading a bestseller, Late Great Planet Earth, the other day. Almost 3 million copies now sold. Listen to what Hal Lindsey writes in the beginning of this book. You know, I used to come to the beach to get away from things, just the relaxing of the waves pounding the shore. But now even the ocean is a reminder that man may be running out of time. Scientists tell us today that we are approaching a time when the ocean may not be able to sustain life anymore. The Secretary General of the UN recently told us that man has perhaps 10 years to solve the problem of survival. He pointed out the three great crises which are unique to this generation. The problem of nuclear weapons, the problem of overpopulation, the population explosion, and the problem of pollution of our air and water. He said that if we don't do anything to solve these problems in this decade, we are approaching the time and they will be beyond our capacity to control them. Copyright, 1970. Just think how bad it is now. I got another book. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. It's a good read. But that was 28 years ago. Now there's 116 reasons. And I did buy some zombie three-day survival kit. I brought about 100 of them, so when the apocalypse does happen, I can come into my bunker and stay safe, stay secure. You know, this sounds crazy, I know. But do you know to the outside world, the conservative Baptist evangelical church seems like all we want to do is hide? Hide and hang on. That's about it. Hide and hang on. Wait for Jesus' return. A, a fancy theological term for this is called evacuation theology. Evacuation theology is this idea that the world is a Titanic. We are on the Titanic. The Titanic is sinking and sinking fast. We better get as many people as we can off the Titanic so they won't perish along with the world. Nothing will endure. God will destroy everything before he can usher in everything new. And the only hope we have, the only hope, it's in here to just escape and hang on until Jesus comes. But is this biblical? Is this idea even biblical? Is it right to simply hunker in and hold on till Jesus, to have just our holy huddle where we gather together in our four walls and this is where we're safe? Just us, our family, and let the world rot. Just let them rot. Is that even biblical? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. In fact, that's why the title, if you look above the balcony, the title of this month is called Engage. The idea of his engage is God has made us for more than people who hide away. Jesus put it like this in John 17. His last prayer to the Father, he said, 
They are in the world. I, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Why not? He just says, I don't want them to be of the world. He leaves us here for a purpose, to engage the world. Not to hide, not to wait, not to complain and pine away for heaven to come, muttering to ourselves, I was meant for heaven, so I just don't give a darn about anybody else. We are to engage. To talk about this month, I want you to take your Bibles, and we are going to have one passage that we're going to look at throughout this month. And I guarantee you, you've heard these verses before, but I want them to be I want them to be our boundaries for how we are to see the rest of this month. These are words of Jesus. This is the Beatitudes. And then right after the Beatitudes, it's the continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. We pick up on chapter 5 of Matthew. See it right up there, Matthew 5. The verses are 13 to 16. And I want you to listen very closely to what Jesus says. Because he's talking about you. Verse 13. You, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, under a bushel. But they put it on a stand, and it gives light in the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How many people have heard that verse before? A lot of you, I think because it's very earthy, it makes sense to us. But how many of us really live this? Go into every situation, whether we go into our schools, our workplaces, or even our homes, and say, in this situation, I'm going to be the salt and the light here. Jesus is going to use two metaphors. A metaphor is... A very interesting phrase that says something is like something so you can understand it. Something that's kind of intangible. He talks, he's going to relate it to tangible things. In this case, he's going to say we are like or to be salt and we are to be light. Actually, in the first uh, 12 verses of chapter 5 on Sermon of the Mount, it talks about Jesus is talking about the character qualities of a person of his kingdom. They are meek. They are peacemakers. They are are people who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now he's going to get into is what we are to be if we are truly his followers. We are to be salt and light. Metaphors are an interesting pattern of speech because one writer said metaphors are generative. They help you see the world differently and respond to the world differently. For instance, about 20 years ago in Walt Disney World and Walt Disneyland, the people that ran the different, um, like the different rides and the different parts of the park, 
the owner of Disney World or the CEO decided to say, you are no longer employees, but you guys are now actors. Don't view yourself as employees. View yourself as an actor. And it changed the whole way they performed their duty. Instead of just taking tickets and letting kids go in, they started playing the part. So if you were Captain Jack Sparrow, Pirates of the Caribbean, you, you know, you, they, they started acting. And they'd say, come in. And they took on this new persona, and it said it just boosted the, uh, just the efficiency and the excitement that the employees had because of a metaphor. A metaphor from employee to actor changed their whole behavior. In the same way, by calling you light, by calling you salt, it should change you. These metaphors should change you. Let's take a look at these metaphors because they're very important. Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, he's actually calling us individually to be salt, individually to be light. The first metaphor of salt is very familiar to us. Salt is recognizable to everybody. It's white and grainy. You guys know the substance. You lick your finger, put it in there. Mm, really good. Ah, oh, I got two, the first service, I didn't get that much. But salt, you guys understand salt? It's a very clear illustration. What is the point of calling a salt? First of all, I want you to look at verse 13 because the way he writes it, it's very specific. He says it like this. You are the salt of the earth. There's two implications by that small statement. First implication, salt is different than earth. In other words, the earth, there's something wrong with it, so it needs salt. The earth is like a piece of meat that's rotting. It's putrefying. It's falling apart. If there was no salt, it would continue in this process of putrefaction until it was completely destroyed. I once read this book and saw this movie about this kid who wanted to survive in Alaska. Somehow he shot a moose. I don't know. A moose died. He's really hungry. But he did not procure the meat. He let it stay there a couple days. He went back to get it, took his knife, and when he went back to the moose's meat, he could smell it. And then he went to grab some, and it was loaded full of maggots. And then the wolves came, and they started ripping the wolf meat apart. In the same way, if we aren't salt, the world will start falling apart like that meat, and the wolves will have a heyday. I once heard, what? what is wrong with the world? What's wrong with it? Is it the pol political stru uh, structures, the government? Is it the media? Do you know what's wrong with the world? Christians aren't salt anymore. It's meant to putrefy. But we have been sent in as salt. And so the other implication is we aren't to be part of this putrefaction. We are to be uniquely different. We are not to be the world, nor to be worldly. 
So when people laugh at these horrific jokes or watch rotten stuff or are just as mean and evil, if we behave the same way, are we not also contributing to the demise? We are to be different. That's the implication of salt. But the third thing about salt is what salt does. To the original listener, salt's first job was to preserve rotting, to stop it, to rub it in the meat because that salt will kill the bacteria that causes the process of the meat to decompose. So salt prevents further decay. No, no, man, I took a lot of salt. Holy mackerel. Another thing, it makes things taste better, like water, for instance. And meat, a good steak with the right amount of seasoned salt. Oh, boy, that's good. Here, here, just here's a slab of meat. I just cooked it for you. Tastes like rawhide. Go eat it. No, you put salt on it, so now that's, and I love this word, succulent meat. It's close to lunchtime, isn't it? Salty Logan steak. <laughs> See how salt makes it attractive? We are to make life attractive as well, Christians. You know what we normally do? We normally say, the earth is going to hell and you better get saved and come on in the bunker in here with us. A lot of fun in here, but before you come in here, are you wearing the right thing? All right, because my radio station's only tuned on to one station. You know that organ music in here? And you, you really can't laugh in here because it's not funny. Who wants to live in the bunker, honestly? We are also called light. You know this one very well. I was given a good uh, starter course on this after the first service. First service, I almost lit this whole place on fire. So he, I know that you are responsible for me. So watch, I got it, I got it working well. So if it was really dark and you just turn on the light, look at the light. Light, do you know what light does? It shines. Kind of obvious, isn't it? Is it? Do you shine? See, the, the same way it's written in verse 14, it says you are the light of the world. So again, the implication is the world and light is different. It's different. So the first thing we can say when you examine light Go ahead on the first one. Light implies darkness. Light implies if there was no light, the world would be in darkness. It implies it. What is darkness? Darkness, in biblical speak, is ignorance, a lack of understanding, and more than anything, it's evil. Go to John 3 a second. John chapter 3. People don't like that word these days, that idea of evil. The only thing we're willing to call evil anymore is terrorists. For good reason. They cut people's throats. That's evil, of course. But evil is anything that is against the life of God being seen. John chapter 3, Jesus is talking about the state of the world. And look at verse 19. John chapter 3, verse 19. 
Jesus said, here's the judgment. That means here is, God has lowered his gavel on the world. Boom, here's the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Hmm. The world hates light because they like evil. Why did Jesus die? Do you want to know why Jesus died? It's because he was bright. Every time he'd walk into the Pharisees' situations, he would reveal their hypocrisy. And they hated him for it. He would always show up people's not, not necessarily even by pointing anything out, but because he was so pure and so bright and so good, everybody else's badness just came through and they didn't want him around. When I was a little kid growing up, I'd always have it. There was a nickname I hated. I really hated it. And I don't know why I had it, but I tried to get rid of it quickly. It's like about fourth or fifth grade. All these other kids on the playground would say, you know, you know what, man, you're a goody-goody. I hated that. I hated it. Because there is in that phrase, goody-goody, this assumption, if you don't have a little bit of evil in you, there's something wrong with you. You're not cool. We say that about actors. You know, those little, those, those girls that were on Walt Disney, but now they've grown up, they can do adult things. What that means is they're okay. They're perfectly comfortable with evil. That's really what that means. If you go to the urban context, which would be the inner city, the black African city, you know what the, one of the worst things to be, absolutely worst thing, is to be a snitch. So the gangster goes down the street, he shoots a seven-year-old boy, somebody sees him, but he's not allowed to say who shot that seven-year-old boy because he doesn't want to be a snitch. People hate light. That's sick. second thing we can say about light is this, is that it reveals what's hidden, it's meant to, and then it's to point, not only to reveal what's hidden, but it points the right way, the right direction. Specifically in this case, we are light because we have the light of the world in us, that's why we're light. We are not light in and of ourselves. We are light because light is in us. When the Spirit of God lives in you, you have God's light in you. Therefore, you should shine. And when you have it in there, you are pointing people the way to real life. The brightest light of all, the light that shines the most, is called the gospel. That there was a man named Christ who came into this world to die for sinners. That's what this whole table is about. And if you believe in Jesus, you can have God's life in you. That is the brightest light, the brightest message of all. So as light, yes, by your actions, you're going to reveal people's hypocrisy. But you should also point truth to people. Tell them the truth. Because the world's dark. They're ignorant and they don't know. You are salt. 
and you are light. These two metaphors are meant to guide our choices. They're meant to give us patterns of behavior. Each and every day, in each and every situation, we should ask ourselves this question. If I am salt and light, that means I should, okay, when I'm with my friends, I should what? If I'm salt and light and I'm at work, and everybody, let's say you get a 10-minute break, but people want to say, ah, oh, the boss isn't here, let's take a half hour, play some cards. If I'm salt and light, do I, what do I do? Do I steal from my boss? If I'm a boss and I'm salt and light, how do I treat my employees? Am I a jerk to them because they're underneath me? Or do I, my patient, kind? Well, that's only with your wife. You don't have to be like that with guys you work with. Really? If you are salt in life and you're with your wife, how are you to behave? Ask that question. Use those metaphors. And I'm just telling you, they're generative. They'll change the way you see things. Let's get a little bit more insight as we continue. Go back to Matthew 5. There's a couple more things I want to bring your attention to. Before he talks about the salt, before he talks about the light, you need something, Jared? Okay. Why, were you all, why weren't you in the first half of my sermon? I sit through all of your music. I even put up with some of the songs. I'm kidding. I'll be salt and light. Jared, that was wonderful. Anyhow, Jared, you get me off. Why did you get me off track? All right. If you notice in verse 13 and 14, before he talks about salt and before he talks about light, he uses two words that are the same. Actually, in the Beatitudes, is the only time you'll find it like this. He says, you are. These are very important to understand because a lot of people have some questions with, with the word you. Is you talking about the church institutionally in general? You know, or the, a, a nation, you? You, America, are a city on a hill. Is that what, the, is it about? Big institutions, top-down stuff, or is it about individual human beings? A person at a time. And I think it's key, especially the way you see yourself. In verses 1 through uh, 12, it's very clear he's calling individual people who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who are personally being persecuted, who are merciful. In the same way, this is calling out people. Jesus is focusing on individual people. This is not a top-down salting. This is, as one writer put it, this is cellular infiltration. Grain by grain, person by person. Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said. I'm gonna, it's a kind of a long statement, but you need to listen. It says, the main trouble in the world is that there are far too few Christian people. And that those of us who are Christian are not sufficiently salt. We must admit that it is not true of us that when we enter a room, people are immediately controlled in their language and their general conversation because we have arrived. That is where we fail lamentably. Let me just pause there. What he's saying is he's saying if you're truly salt, then when you enter a room, people will know and they'll change. It happens to me just by my, my title. Oh, the pastor. Oops, sorry, Pastor, I said that. I swore. Didn't mean to swear in front of you. 
what is he saying? That, oh, you're the only one that really talks directly to God. So, oops, sorry. If you're a true Christian, hopefully people will try to say, man, they're different. Oh, maybe they don't like this. I can remember when I first became a Christian, I was part of a fraternity, and they were wicked dudes. I've just been telling you. And they invited me over to a house one day, and they were watching a terrible show. And I just walked out of the room, and they're like, what's wrong, man? And I'm just telling you, I was convicted on the inside. I just got to get out of here. And, they, and I just sat on the porch, or saying, what, what's going on? I said, I cannot watch that, because those women on that screen are made in the image of God. They're not pieces of meat. They're God's daughters. And they're like, what's wrong with you? Literally, they're like, what, what in the world happened to you? And I wouldn't go out that night with them to the bar, and one guy said, what's wrong with you? And I just, I remember watching this movie about Martin Luther, about scriptures I couldn't get rid of. And he goes, my heart is held conscious to the word of God. I just can't do that anymore. I can't. When you enter a room, something should be different. I think, if you are really a Christian and you are in a room, you should be the one that brings life to it and enjoys people, actually likes people. He goes on to write, Our truly saintly man radiates his influence. It will permeate any group in which he happens to be. Just a little salt can affect the great mass. Look at life. Look at society in this world. Is it not obviously rotten? Look at those horrible divorces and separations, this joking about the sanctities of life, the increase of substance abuse and sexual perversions. There are your problems, and it is obvious that men, by passing legislation, cannot deal with them. Newspaper articles do not seem to touch them. Indeed, nothing ever will, save the presence of an increasing number of individual Christians who will control the putrefaction and the pollution, and the rottenness, and the evil, and the vice. I had a, about a month ago, I, there's a lot of people that help me in my ministry, and they don't get paid. They'll, they'll meet with people from our church or outside our community. They'll, they'll walk alongside people in dark times. And this one guy from our church, he, would, he ministered to a lot of people. He does it... Um, he does it underneath the surface. Nobody knows, but he's faithful. And one day after he was just sharing with me some of the situations, getting some wisdom, I just said to him, I said, I, don't, I just said, thank you for being a Christian. He's like, what do you mean? I said, just thank you for being, you know, you're acting like Christ. It doesn't, I don't see that too often, actually. The word you is the theory of cellular infiltration. The second word R is actually a statement on purpose. Design, what we've been made for. So you could say theory of cellular infiltration is you. R is the reality of why we have been made. Our purpose. Our purpose is to taste like salt and to shine like light. Our purpose is to shake and to shine. We are sent on the earth to stop putrefaction by living holy lives. We are meant to make life full of laughter and joy through the Spirit. We are to be messengers of truth, sharing wisdom and life-saving gospel with those who are lost. That is our design. 
Malcolm Muggridge was a writer uh, back in Europe for the BBC in Britain. And he would say what's very fascinating is after, before he was a Christian, he would write a lot of newspaper copy, television copy writings. And he said after he became a Christian, he noticed something about evil. Evil's interesting. On the media, you can make it very attractive. You can make it seem like it's always new. It's always exciting. He said, but in real life, real evil is the truly monotonous and boring and lumbering thing. Have you ever met somebody that was a drunk on TV? It's kind of funny. Movies, it's kind of funny. Have you ever met a real drunk in real life? They're the most miserable people I've ever met. I had a roommate that was a drunk. He would, he would be miserable until he had his first drink around 1 o'clock again. It wasn't funny. Christians, we have love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. And one of the most compelling things is self-control. It's, it's attractive. Humility is beautiful. It's hard to picture that on a movie, but in real life, when you meet a real humble person, you want to be around them. I don't know how to explain it. So our job is to be salt and to light. Jesus said, he said, if you're not, if you don't live like this, it's kind of silly. Look at, uh, look at verse 5. I mean, chapter 5, verse, let's first start with uh, 15. He says, uh, people do not light a lamp and put it under a basket. And just that statement, there's some commentators like, well, what does he mean by basket? What kind of basket? And other commentators like, that has nothing to do with it. It's just the point is, if you light a light and cover it, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to hide away from the world and waiting until Jesus comes and I sing the right song and I wear the right thing and I don't talk to my neighbors and I'm always angry and, and I just read my Bible and that's it. That's ridiculous. I am to salt the earth and shine. I am to engage people. Listen to what he says in verse, in verse 13. He says, um, if salt's lost its taste, that's verse 12, how shall its saltiness be restored? Like, if, have you ever had a French fry without salt? <laughs> ah, have you ever had a McDonald's French fry like an hour later? It tastes like plastic. I don't know if that has, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but the point is, man, if salt loses its taste, you know what it's good for? He says, no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Get rid of it. Luke says, you know what? If it loses its taste, throw it on a, a hill of dung, on excrement. That's what a person is life is just waiting and not engaging. One other thing I want you to point to, not only is you are me and you infiltrate, and that's who you're supposed to be. But secondly, I think this is written in this way. Salt precedes light the way Jesus says it. Salt comes first, light comes second. I don't think that's coincidental. Before, before you point the direction, before you give the truth, before you show people Christ or talk about Christ, you better taste good. 
your life needs to be tasty. People want it. They want to know why you're like that. I had a conversation this week with a person I was online, and he likes to argue with me. Sometimes he's pretty mean. And I wrote to him, I said, well, you know, that's just not a good way to argue online. He said, hey, it's just, it's the truth. The truth doesn't need to be nice. The truth is just the truth. That's how it is. I said, well, to me, the way you dress me is very unloving. He said, you know what? It has, makes no sense. It doesn't matter. It's just the truth. It does matter. It does. That's one of the problems that Christians have had. We've had the truth, but often we present it in a very uncompelling way. C.S. Lewis, in his book, his biography, they asked him, why did you come to Christ? And he said, it wasn't necessarily the argument. It's just that I saw Christians. I read writings of Christians. I met Christians. Their lives were just fuller. They were fascinating. That's what C.S. Lewis said. And he's a mind, his, his mind is one that is sharp. He was attracted to who they were before their argument. Salt should precede light. No one will listen to you if you are not tasty. So the question then is, how do I engage? Well, for the next three weeks, we are going to discuss very specifically, using both the parameters of salt and light, we're going to address these three issues the next three weeks. The first one is we're going to address the issue of life and sanctity and things that God has considered sacred. Not only just the child in the womb, but also the family that that child should come to. There's some design that is sanctified, that God ordained, that we need to talk about. How that child is raised. It really matters. And we need to be able to speak about it in a world that could care less. Second thing we're going to talk about is politics. It's coming. The Hillary train is rolling. And Donald Trump is rolling the other way. When an immovable force hits an unstoppable force, who's going to win? Rand Paul. I don't know. I don't know who's going to win. I have no idea. But we got to be, we're citizens of this country. We don't just get mad. We don't just rip people apart. We listen. But we put up a good argument as well. Third thing we need to talk about is media. How do you handle Facebook? Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. How do you handle that stuff? Just normal cable. How do you, as a person that's salt and light, really engage this stuff? We're going to talk about this too. So this month is engage. Get out of the fallout shelter. Become a real human being that's salt and light. And so really the question will be for us, is are you ready to shake like salt and shine like light? I'm going to close with this story. And the story I'm going to close with is, I just have to warn you, my, my mom knows me well. I have a penchant, a taste for the macabre, the kind of twisted darkness. I don't know why. I'm sorry I do. But for Christmas, my mom got me movies with Vincent Price starring doing Edgar Allan Poe movies. It's very entertaining for Christmas, the great Christmas movies. Actually, they're not. Do you know anything about Edgar Allan Poe? <laughs> that kind of stuff. Kind of creepy. I like it. I don't know why. As I was getting some of the, as I was uh, reading some of the books, one book came out 
that fascinates me. It's called the Mask of the Red Death. I don't know if you ever heard of the Mask of the Red Death, but it's one of his most famous, Edgar Allan Poe's most famous short stories. The Mask of the Red Death takes place in some 16th century English town. And the Red Death is ravaging everybody. It's, it's kind of like the plague, but it's worse because it, once you get the virus, blood starts coming from your pores and your eyes and your mouth, fingernail tips. And then it only once it takes effect, you have a half hour and you're dead. Boom, you die. It's called the Red Death. It's bloody. It's bad. That's the context. And this guy, Prince Prospero, man, this guy was wealthy. That's why he's called Prospero. He's this wealthy man. He builds this giant castle, this abbey with walls all around it. He puts guards in front of it. And it's giant. And he invites 1,000 of his closest friends that are rich, beautiful, in love to indulge in wine. And he invites them to be cloistered in, hidden from the world. While they die of the red death, these guys party on the inside. It's a weird castle. They've got seven rooms that are of a different color. In each room, the window color, if it's blue, everything on the inside is blue or yellow or orange or purple. There's seven rooms. But the last room is the strangest of them all. It has drapes that are black. Heavy black folds come off the curtains. The carpet is black. The ceiling's black. But the window's not black, it's blood red. And a light shines through that window, and right underneath that blood red window is a grandfather clock that has a chime that has a deep bellow. And every time it bellows, bong, it says the people stop. It says their blood turns to ice. And then they go about their business after it's done. Well, after they were there for about four, five to six months, they decided to have this grand party where they had dancing and singing and orchestras and everybody wore masks and their best outfit and their best wear. Most beautiful people. They would dance to that music, but then they'd hear bong. They'd stop. Dance for another hour, bong. They'd stop laughing and drinking, and then it comes midnight. The first bong, bong, everybody stops. Second bong, bong. This figure shows up, black cape, shrouded face with a mask that looks like a dry, dead skeleton. It starts walking through each different colored room. The guests stare at him, say, who is this visitor? Nobody knows. They point him out to Prospero, and Prospero gets mad. Who are you? I didn't invite you. Bong. The visitor keeps walking through each room, being chased by Prospero with a knife. The last bong, bong, they end up in the last room with the red window, the color of blood. Prospero takes out his knife, getting ready to kill the shrouded figure, and the shrouded figure takes off his mask, and Prospero dies dead of the plague. The people in the party come and attack that same figure and they rip off his shroud and nothing's there. All it was was the spirit of the plague which affected all of them and within a half hour, everybody in the castle died. Isn't that a great story? What's that have to do with anything? 
well, we can hide in here from a world that's falling apart in sin and God is going to judge them. And let's just hang on till Jesus comes. Who cares? Who cares that the world's rotting out there? But you know something? That same thing that's killing people on the outside is in here with us. It's in me. It's sin. And a sign that I don't want to reach people is a sign that's already affected me. That I have no care for people. That I have no love. That is a sign that the plague is in me. Hiding does nothing. We have been made to be salt and we've been made to be light. We have been made to love. We have been made to warn people that there is a God coming. But I'm telling you, it won't work unless we're tasty first. This year we have got to engage. Quit hiding. Quit just waiting for Jesus to come. We are made to be salt and light. Will you shake and shine this year? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the very clear words of Jesus. He's so clear you can't mistake what he's saying. And by saying we're salt and light, I don't know if we, can, we can't, can't misunderstand that. Help us, God, to, to shine and taste good. Help us to be Christians this year, to stand up strong in your spirit, to be moved with compassion for people. Help us. We need your help. And Father, I, I look forward to this year. Help us to pray. Father, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.